Tēnā koutou. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here this evening. I'd like to thank Sandeep for, uh, uh, you know, organising and bringing us all together. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm also delighted to be back in Christchurch. <coughs> this is my third visit to um, uh, Christchurch as High Commissioner, though I've in, uh, really enjoyed visiting the Garden City many, many times over the years before that. It's an exciting time to be an Australian diplomat in New Zealand. 2023 has so far been a very significant year for the trans-Tasman relationship. This year, our two countries celebrate a trifecta of anniversaries. The 40th anniversary of the Closer Economic Relations Trade Agreement, 50 years of the Trans-Tasman Travel Arrangement, and 80 years of mutual diplomatic representation in each other's countries. So we've celebrated these anniversaries this year in very different ways, um, culminating in the visit by Prime Minister Albanese to Wellington just a few weeks ago. Remarkably, that visit represented the fifth meeting between our Prime Ministers in the last year or so. Uh, and that's been really quite dramatic. I don't think I need to tell this audience at least um, how significant that is as a signal for the state of the relationship. But, um, beyond Prime Minister, Prime Ministerial contact, nine different Australian ministers have visited New Zealand since May 2020. <coughs> and countless New Zealand ministers have travelled across the Tasman. In June, our Minister for Climate Change and Energy, the Honourable Chris Bowen, visited Christchurch on the back of the inaugural dialogue between climate and finance ministers to learn about some of the work underway in this city on making the transition to net zero. Of course, there's more to the trans-Tasman relationship than official exchanges, important as they are. What's been great this year, as we, some of us have been discussing already, has been the collaboration that we have had on sport. Our co-hosting of the FIFA Women's World Cup has been a wonderful example of what we can achieve on the world stage when we join forces. And I've been heartened by the many Kiwis who have supported the Matildas in the quarterfinals and the semifinals of the Cup last night. So many people stayed up late and it's really meant a great deal to us. Like the anniversaries we celebrate though, um, we tend to historically go back to our shared history when we talk about our relationship or go to sport. So it's not, you know, what I've sketched out for you are the terms in which we describe and talk about our relationship and have done so for a very long time. But any dynamic relationship needs to look to the future. And that's really what I want to focus <coughs> on this evening. When the CER, the Close Economic Relations Trade Agreement, was created 40 years ago, we faced significant trade hurdles and headwinds. And in response to that, we came up with the audacious idea of unilaterally removing the trade and economic barriers across the Tasman. That act not only drove stronger efficiencies in our economies, it also gave us the basis to argue credibly for trade liberalisation elsewhere in the world. That one 
act that one agreement has paid off many times over in the decades since, creating significant economic prosperity for our people. Today, Australia is New Zealand's second largest trading partner and largest source of foreign direct investment by a large margin. New Zealand is likewise a significant economic partner for us, our eighth largest export market and fourth largest destination for investment. And the numbers are very significant. In 2022 alone, our relationship was worth over uh, 29 billion New Zealand dollars in trade value. Two-way investment between Australia and New Zealand now stands at a total stock of $243 billion. That's actually, that's just huge. So in, in short, what the conclusion we draw from that is that the CER was a triumph of collaboration over competition between us. And that's something we take so much for granted, but there was a time when there were tariff barriers and we couldn't really easily trade with each other. So it's been a really tremendous um, achievement. But the world we face today is a very different world to 1983. Where economic risks were paramount then, our risks today are strategic as well as economic. And this is now a critical juncture for our relationship. I'm sure all of you will be more than aware of the issues we face. Growing geostrategic competition, economic coercion, and challenges to the rules-based system all pose risks to the basis of Australia and New Zealand's liberty, security, and prosperity. Recognizing that we do better when we work together, our two prime ministers in July launched a Trans-Tasman Roadmap to 2035. The roadmap is more than just another diplomatic declaration. It's a statement setting out where and how we will work together as we face a changing world and a more uncertain future. In the, it aims, in the words of Prime Minister Albanese, to make our partnership fit for the modern era. In a relationship as broad and deep as ours, it's important to articulate where we will focus our efforts. The roadmap identifies five pillars where we believe New Zealand and Australia can work together to make a positive difference, both to the welfare of our own countries and to our region. And these five pillars are economic cooperation, trade and climate change. Secondly, stronger collaboration on security and defence. Third, working together in the Pacific. Fourth, upholding our shared values and principles. And finally, strengthening our people to people links. So allow me to just step through each of these in turn. First off, the economic pillar. This pillar recognises that the global economy and the global challenges we now face are far more complex than those in 1983. Protectionism is on the rise. It is getting much more difficult to secure gains under free trade agreement negotiations. And today, when we think about our economic interests, those extend far beyond trade. They span investment, regulatory environments, business conditions, immigration and labour policy, infrastructure and the movement of people. Layered on top of that, considerations such as gender equality and growing links with Indigenous businesses also are now important features of how we conduct our economic relationships. We will continue 
to um, extend the single economic market and facilitate a seamless business environment under the CER, that will continue. So I'm not saying I'm jettisoning that. But modernising our economic relationship means incorporating all those broader elements. We've already taken a step forward here. Just last Friday, our trade ministers issued a declaration on sustainable and inclusive trade, which wraps up those broader issues. Today, of course, climate change is as much an economic as an environmental or moral imperative. So it is upfront as a key part of our economic relationship in the roadmap. To illustrate what this looks like, I mentioned in June, we held the first world's first ever meeting of our respective climate and finance ministers. And at that meeting, our ministers agreed to coordinate efforts to produce and supply electric and zero emission vehicles into the Australasian market and to work to align sustainable finance networks across the Tasman. It is by joining our forces in this way that we can generate benefits for both our countries in ways that address the demands of modern economies. Turning to the second pillar, security and resilience. And that second pillar of the roadmap recognises that our partnership is also a strategic asset. Fundamentally, there is no other country that Australia trusts as much as we do New Zealand. This is because we know each other so well. When we speak of our shared history and values, what that means in reality is that we see the world in similar ways and we both aspire to the same things. What do we aspire to? Well, for our part, Australia seeks an Indo-Pacific region which is peaceful and predictable, that is governed by rules and norms, and where all our countries and people can cooperate, trade and thrive. However, as I've mentioned before, we now live in a region where all those aims are under challenge. The Indo-Pacific region is home to the largest military buildup anywhere in the world, <coughs> transparency and reassurance. Across the region, defence spending has grown by 33% in the last 10 years alone. Russia's illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine, which both our nations have rightly and vehemently condemned, illustrates what can happen when larger powers seek to exercise their power against smaller ones in defiance of international law. Australia is responding to all these strategic challenges we see around us by using all our levers of statecraft to positively shape our region and to deter aggression and coercion. How we do this means striking a careful balance between investing in our defence capability to strengthen deterrence, as well as engaging in active diplomacy to provide strategic reassurance to our partners in the region. We recognise, though, that even though Australia is taking action, no country can face the scale and range of these challenges alone. Australia and New Zealand have a long history of security cooperation. We are also formal military allies. So New Zealand is a vital partner for us. Interoperability between our defence forces is a crucial asset and one we are keen to preserve. 
To this end, we welcome the recent release of New Zealand's Defence Review, which places a high priority on maintaining our interoperability. Beyond defence, the roadmap identifies where we will cooperate with New Zealand across the entire suite of security concern. It includes collaboration between our national security agencies, working together on transnational threats, including terrorism, violent extremism, foreign interference, mis- and disinformation, and cyber attacks. And I'm very confident that, that that level of trust that we have between us will underpin and secure a shared security collaboration going forward, making each of us stronger in the process. Moving on from security and kind of related to that, it does extend beyond the Tasman. There's a tendency for us to talk about the trans-Tasman relationship as a, a linkage between the two of us. But when you think about the power of the bilateral relationship, it's actually what we can do together outside in the world together as well. And so that goes, I suppose, to the third pillar where we work together in the Pacific. Both Australia and New Zealand are Pacific nations. It's where we live. Our future success is tied to that of our region. <coughs> the roadmap spells out the many ways in which we both work together with partners in the Pacific. But it also recognises that how we partner matters as much as what we deliver. <coughs> Australia and New Zealand already do a lot together in the Pacific. For example, we are both members of regional organisations and we have a long-standing commitment to providing swift and effective responses to emergency and disaster situations. Over many years, we have also provided support in specific situations where needed, for example, to the government of Solomon Islands to preserve security and stability. <coughs> Despite this, we can and should do more together to leverage our assets and our resources to respond to Pacific priorities. This includes, for example, supporting climate resilient infrastructure or supporting economic resilience in Pacific countries. Just last week, Australia launched our new international development policy, the first in almost a decade, in which, as you'd expect, the focus on the Pacific is front and centre. I had spoken earlier about defence and diplomacy as core elements of our statecraft. Our development program is another critical component in building the stable, secure and resilient region we reach, we seek. While I'd encourage you to read the new policy, it really is great. It's printed on lovely glossy, glossy picture, <coughs> nice pictures. Um, but uh, I, I thought I might just draw out a few salient points. The policy reinforces the importance of starting with listening to the priorities and needs of our partners in the Pacific when we design our development assistance programs. Part of this listening and respect is a commitment to take action, not just um, at home, but regionally and globally. So very clearly, um, climate change is a number one priority for Pacific nations, as is gender equality. The new development policy commits to ensuring at least half of all new bilateral and regional investments um, will have a climate change objective from 2024 to 2025. 
And we have reinforced that our target, uh, that 80%, we have reinforced our target that 80% of all investments also meet a gender equality objective. Perhaps drawing us a bit closer to New Zealand's approach, the new development policy commits us to building genuine and respectful partnerships, supporting local leadership and embedding the perspectives of First Nations in our efforts. And what this does in aligning our approach with that approach that New Zealand has had for a long time, is it opens up much more scope for both Australia and New Zealand to partner meaningfully with and in the Pacific. So there's kind of a very quick gallop through the big three pillars. There's a lot there, I'm, I'm conscious. But all those three sit under what I call the foundational pillars of the relationship, and that would be our values and our people. Um, translating the ambition that we've spelled out into meaningful action and delivery will take serious commitment on both sides. It will reshape our relationship in new ways into the future. And what gives me confidence that Australia and New Zealand can achieve this ambition is embedded in the final two pillars of the roadmap. It's what I call the secret source of the trans-Tasman relationship, and that's the values and people links. So on the first, on the values point, both our nations have been long been active supporters of the rules-based order. Those rules and norms that govern us and that have allowed both our countries to prosper, thrive and trade, and to avoid a might is right approach. For our efforts to succeed in the world, we need to continue our work to uphold and champion the system together, guided by international law as it comes under increasing strain. So the roadmap commits us to continue supporting multilateral forums such as the UN and the WTO, and to continue promoting respect for human rights globally. As a concrete example, we've been very grateful for New Zealand's support of Australia's bid to host COP31 in partnership with the Pacific. Hosting COP31 reflects not just our commitment to climate change action at home and internationally, it also reflects our support for Pacific engagement and Pacific priorities, of course, but also Pacific engagement in the multilateral system and helping where we can to amplify the Pacific voice internationally. Which brings me to our people links, the fifth and final pillar of the roadmap. Ours is not just a relationship between two governments. Ours is a relationship between two peoples. It is the personal connections which provide the truly unique character to our relationship and bind us as family. Today, nearly 700,000 New Zealanders call Australia home. That's 15% of New Zealand's population. So many Australians and New Zealanders, myself included, have experience working, doing business, holidaying, studying, <coughs> living, visiting family and friends in each other's countries. These links are what makes our relationship so strong and dynamic. We are committed, therefore, to nurturing our people links on the basis of mutual respect and reciprocity. Earlier this year, Prime Minister Albanese announced a direct pathway to Australian citizenship for those New Zealanders who already call Australian home. 
And as of the 1st of July last month, New Zealand citizens living in Australia have had a direct pathway. In response to New Zealand's concerns, the Australian government also amended our regulations to take a common sense approach to the 501 visa cancellations, taking into account how long someone has lived in Australia. Increasingly, we're both working to recognise and support the value our Indigenous people bring to the trans-Tasman relationship as well. In Australia, when we speak of our people, we speak of a nation that is home to the oldest continuous civilization in the world, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and over 300 ancestries that link us to every corner of the earth. The Australian government has committed to holding a referendum later this year on the principle of recognizing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution through an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The government is also developing a First Nations foreign policy to reflect Indigenous voices in our national identity. The appointment of Mr Justin Mohammed as Australia's inaugural ambassador for First Nations people is an important step toward elevating the perspectives of First Nations people, Australia's first diplomats. And we recognise that strengthening our Indigenous connection also has benefits further afield enabling deeper engagement with many of our closest partners, not least New Zealand, but also our Pacific family. So in concluding, Prime Minister Albanese has described this as a decisive decade for peace, prosperity, security and unity in the Indo-Pacific. Both our governments recognise that we face a world not just of increasing challenge, but also of increasing complexity. Our task is to find a way beyond simple binaries to grapple with this complexity and in the process to find the opportunities it presents. And each of us needs to do this in our own way. As I read with very keen interest the various foreign and strategic policy documents issued by the New Zealand government in recent weeks, I recognise that you, like us, are working to map a path that works for your country in articulating and responding to the challenges we face. Like us, you also place a strong emphasis on working with partners. We welcome and share your view on the importance of close alignment between Australia and New Zealand. Today, the trust between both our countries is more than just a feature of the relationship. <clears throat> it is a vital strategic asset. Just as we did with the CER 40 years ago, we are now entering a new phase of our relationship. We don't seek to be identical. Our unity of purpose does not mean uniformity of approach. What makes us different can also be a strength. But what will be key is a sense of common purpose and a spirit of collaboration. And so the roadmap is one key document that provides us with this common vision. It's a recipe for collaboration and it's a recipe for the future. I look forward very much to working with our New Zealand colleagues to translating that vision to reality for the benefit of all of us. And I look forward to the discussion that we have ahead of us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks, High Commissioner, for giving us an overview of the Trans-Tasman Roadmap to 2035 and, you know, touching upon the five pillars of it. Um, the floor is now open for any question that our members present over here might have or would want to engage with the High Commissioner. We could stop recording for the Q&A section if possible.